of an episode for you today. In this episode of Vermont Ed Reads, we're going to be talking about On the Come Up by Angie Thomas. We'll discuss some of the continual and heartbreaking trauma students of color face in our schools, as well as the incredible resilience of mothers. I'm joined today by Marley Evans, a Vermont educator originally from the same Mississippi town as author Angie Thomas, and someone who appeared on our 21st Century Classroom podcast as a brand new educator. She'll be talking a little bit about her experiences of school in Mississippi and Vermont and how some experiences are universal. A quick content note, we're going to be mentioning a couple of episodes of physical, emotional, and familial trauma that occur in On the Come Up, so we want you to be forewarned if that would be helpful. Now pull up a seat. This is Vermont Ed Reads, books for, with, and by Vermont educators. Let's chat. Thanks for joining me, Marley. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, I am a 7th and 8th grade humanities teacher at Charlotte Central School, but I am originally from Jackson, Mississippi, which is where Angie Thomas is from. So I like to imagine in my head that we're best friends, even though we have never met and I only stalk her on Instagram. Um, So I love to read. I've always been a reader. I used to get my books confiscated before I went to lunch because I would just read the whole time and I would read under my desk at school. Um, I'm also a member of Green Mountain Book Award Committee, so uh, uh, I read a ton of YA every year. I usually read over 100 books. I think this year it's going to be about 120, so I love to read. What are you reading right now? I'm always reading at least like five books. I read The New Louise Penny, which was amazing. I always get her books. Um, I'm reading Echo North. Um, I finished Patron Saint of Nothing a couple weeks ago. That was amazing. And I'm rereading, I love to reread some old favorites. I'm rereading Emily Starr, or Emily of New Moon, the Ellen Montgomery series. Wow. You read a lot. I read a lot, but you read more than me. I read a lot. What's your favorite YA of the year so far? That is such a tough question. I really loved On the Come Up. I really loved With the Fire on High. Oh, me too. That one was amazing. Um, Elizabeth Acevedo's The Podex is one of my favorite books of all time. And and With the Fire on High is a great follow-up. Yes, I, I liked it. I'm going to say I liked it more than Podex, and I loved Podex. So that's not a judgment on Podex, but I loved With the Fire on High. Yeah, she's an amazing author. I'm going to read everything she ever writes, just yes. like Angie Thomas. So I have this feeling, Marley, that you and I could talk literature forever, but let's... Yes. Let's move on to On the Come Up. Um, Angie Thomas was the author of The Hate You Give, which everyone is reading and talking about. But On the Come Up is, a, is a, an amazing novel in its own right. Could you introduce us to the main character, Bree? Yes. So Bree, I, I have trouble sometimes in my mind separating Bree from Star. Star is the main character in The Hate You Give. In my mind, it's almost like they're sisters, and I'm constantly comparing them. So Bree is, um, she's in high school. She is from the same neighborhood as Star, Garden Heights, which is a made-up neighborhood, a fictionalized neighborhood. Um, She's feisty. She doesn't fit in this perfect box. She seems like she's always getting in, like, little bits of trouble, little scrapes. Um, And she's still trying to figure out who she is. I think that's very apparent throughout the whole book, is she has all these different 
ways she could go, these different paths she could go, and she's trying to figure out which path to take and who to be throughout the whole book. That sounds like your average high school kids. Yes. Um, but her childhood, unlike Star's, uh, her childhood's been really challenging. Um, I wondered if you could read a section from page 43 of the book, just to give our listeners an idea of the challenges of Bree's um, young years. Yes, definitely. Let me turn there. Okay, so this section is, uh, Bree is describing a nightmare she's had throughout her life. When she was four, her father, who is a rising rapper, his name was Law, he was shot and killed. And in this nightmare, she's five years old, so a year after that. I'm five years old, climbing into my mom's old Lexus. Daddy went to heaven almost a year ago. Aunt Pooh's been gone a couple of months. She went to live with her and mommy's auntie in the projects. I lock my seatbelt in place, and mommy holds my overstuffed backpack toward me. Her arm has all these dark, dark marks on it. She once told me she got them because she wasn't feeling well. You're still sick, mommy, I ask. She follows my eyes and rolls her sleeves down. Yeah, baby, she whispers. My brother gets in the car beside me, and Mommy says we're going on a trip to somewhere special. We end up in our grandparents' driveway. Suddenly, Trey's eyes widen. He begs her not to do this. Seeing him cry makes me cry. Mommy tells him to take me inside, but he won't. She gets out, goes around to his side, unlocks his seatbelt, and tries to pull him out of the car, but he digs his feet into the seat. She grabs his shoulders. Trey. I need you to be my little man, she says, her voice shaky, for your sister's sake, okay? He looks over at me and quickly wipes his face. I'm, I'm, I'm okay, little bit, he claims, but the cry hiccups break up his words. It's okay. He unlocks my seatbelt, takes my hand, and helps me out of the car. Mommy hands us our backpacks. Be good, okay, she says. Do what your grandparents tell you to do. When are you coming back, I ask. She kneels in front of me. Her shaky fingers brush through my hair, then cut my cheek. I'll be back later, I promise. Later when? Later. I love you, okay? She presses her lips to my forehead and keeps them there for the longest. She does the same to Trey and then straightens up. Mommy, when are you coming back? I ask again. She gets in the car without answering me and cranks it up. Tears stream down her cheeks. Even at five, I know she won't be back for a long time. I drop my backpack and chase the car down the driveway. Mommy, don't leave me. But she goes into the street, and I'm not supposed to go into the street. Mommy, I cry. Her car goes, goes, and soon it's gone. Mommy! So, at this point in the real world of the dream, Bree goes to live with her grandparents, her dad's parents, and she lives there for several years. Um, Her mom ends up going to treatment and um, breaking that addiction even though it's something that she definitely still struggles with the temptation of. And Brie gets to go back and live with her mom. But she still is dealing with the consequences of feeling abandoned as a child, losing her dad. She's kind of stuck in between her grandparents and her mom. Yeah. There's a lot of um, trauma in Brie's really early childhood, right, that um, that continues to show up when she's in high school. And I think this book... Um, really helped me think through how trauma plays out for kids later in life when they've experienced it in their early years. Because like you said, her, mo- her mother, in dealing with the death of her husband, um, 
becomes an addict, um, and um, while she gets clean, Bree's Bree's abandoned by her for a while, and there's a lot of pain in that, and the pain of losing her father, which happened right outside her home. So she heard the shots that killed him. Um, I don't know that it felt heavy. It was a heavy start. I have to admit, this book slowed me down. I read it slowly because it felt heavy and hard at times. I don't know if you had that experience. Yeah, it's it's interesting because The Hate You Give starts out with a shooting. So you would think that that would be a tougher start. But I think you're right. There's something about... There's a way we can really empathize rather than judge when we we see what Brie has gone through and what her family's gone through. In fact, reading about her mom, I never felt judgy. I never felt like her mom wasn't a good mom because of her addiction, but I realized that addiction came from so much pain. And her mom didn't come from a good family. Yeah. I love Jada. Brie calls her Jay most of the time, but her name is Jada and um, Brie's mom. And I have so much love for her and her struggle to to be the mom she wants to be for both Brie and for Brie's older brother. Um, and yeah, I want to come back to that a little bit later because the struggle is real for Jada, not with addiction, just addiction, but with um, economics, with making ends meet for her little family. And um, uh, so I want to come back to that a little bit later on in the story because there's just such... Angie Thomas writes Jada with such empathy um, and understanding. Uh, and as a mother myself, I could just, oh, I just felt such kinship with Jada, even though my life has been nothing like hers. Um, so another challenge for Brie is school. Um, she lives in Garden Heights, but she's bused to a much wealthier neighborhood. It's, for some reason, for me, this is like imaginary Chicago. <laughs> but um, she's bused to a, an arts magnet school outside of her neighborhood. And... Um, which is an opportunity for Brie in many ways, right? She doesn't have to worry about the violence at her local school. But um, it's also not. So let's, let's find out a little more about that school on page 49. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read. A short yellow bus waits out front. Midtown the school is in Midtown the neighborhood where people live in nice condos and expensive historic houses. I live in Garden High Zone, but Jay says there's too much BS and not enough people who care there. Private school's not in our budget, so Midtown School of Arts is the next best thing. A few years ago, they started students, started busing students in from all over the city. They called it their diversity initiative. You've got rich kids from the north side, middle-class kids from downtown and midtown, and hood kids like me. There's only 15 of us from the garden at midtown, so they send a short bus for us. Mr. Watson wears his Santa hat and hums along with the Temptations version of Silent Night that plays on his phone. Christmas is less than two weeks away, but Mr. Watson has been in the holiday spirit for months. Hey, Mr. Watson, I say. Hey, Brianna, cold enough for you? Too cold. I ain't no, no such thing. This is the perfect weather. For what? Freezing your... I think I'll stop there. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, Bree's experience of, um, of the magnet school that she goes to? Yes, it's, it's funny that you think of Chicago, because in my mind, this is Atlanta, and it's always been. I have no idea why. Um, 
but I think even in the way we're talking about it is we talk about it as an opportunity and it is on paper it is an opportunity for her to be here at that school but we can already see that there's such a challenge because she feels like she's just filling a quota right that the school needs to have a certain amount of, of students of color and that she's just the student that was placed there um, she talks about on on page 63 she talks about the security guards when they don't think she's listening are complaining about those kids in this school would you read a little bit of that I think that's a really powerful passage sure let me flip to it of course there are so many powerful passages so in this in this part of the book Bree is in the principal's office um, and the principal's there talking to her she didn't say there would be a security guard ranting in her office about those kids bringing that stuff into this school. The door was closed, but I heard him. Those kids, this school, like one doesn't belong with the other. And Bree's just as much a student at the school as every other white kid, but the sense she gets, and I, I think it's pretty apparent through the book that she's not making it up, is that she doesn't fit in, that, that she's almost like an outreach project that's been brought into the school and so nothing about her is celebrated or believed or trusted in the way that the white kids are celebrated believed and trusted and so while it's amazing that she gets to go there in the sense that she's out of her school that didn't doesn't have as as good of academics and maybe isn't as safe has different situations going on at the same time she's not she feels like a charity case almost Absolutely. I, I think that there's this, um, not only this feeling that she gets of like, we're doing you this big favor. You don't really belong here. You should be grateful because we're doing you this great favor. There's also this sense that the school gets to pat themselves on the back because they've successfully completed their diversity initiative, right? And I think that's one of the hazards of diversity initiatives is that it... Um, Frankly, it helps white people at the expense of black and brown people who have to feel like, I don't really belong here. That makes me think about what Rebecca Haslam said. This summer at um, MGI, she spoke, and she, she told she told this story about being on a walk with a friend and how she called herself an ally. And her friend said, being an ally isn't a badge you get to wear you have to do that every single day. And I think the same is true when we talk about um, fighting racism and fighting against white privilege and and all of all of that is that it's not like a, a quota we feel we fill and then we're done. Like we're diverse. We have some people of color in our school and we did a training on it. It's something that we daily and weekly and yearly are putting into our curriculum and the things we do with our students and the way we treat our students. Right, and it doesn't just mean, like, you're here, act like us, right? Um, it means, like, we, inclusivity has to embrace all the ways there are being and knowing in the world, right? And it can't just be, oh, look, uh, oh, look, we've got, a, a, we've got some black and brown students here now, and look, they're poor, too, right? Like, aren't we doing such great work? I think, too, about what you just said about Rebecca Haslam. Um, I was talking to somebody recently about... Um, anti-racism, we were talking about this book, so you want to talk about race, and this idea that um, 
being anti-racist, fighting racism, isn't a destination. It's about the journey, and it's that daily actions you take to be an ally or to fight racism. And she said, um, it's like dental hygiene. You don't just brush your teeth once. You know, twice a day minimum is what we're supposed to be doing. And anti-racism, fighting racism, is just like that. So you don't just get to say, oh, look, we have a certain percentage. Or no acts of racism here because nobody's saying the n-word in your school right but there's more to it than that yeah this book makes that um crystal clear in Bree's experience and i i just need to turn to page seven the very start of the book i think Bree has this experience that just says so much about her whole experience in the entire school lately it's been exactly a month since my last suspension, and I haven't been sent to the principal's office in two weeks. That's a new record. Is everything okay at home? Mrs. Murray asks. You sound like Ms. Collins. That's the young blonde counselor who's nice but tries too hard. Every single time I get sent to her, she asks me questions that sound like they came from some how to talk to statistical black children who come to your office often handbook. How is your home life? None of your business. Have you witnessed any traumatic events lately, such as shootings? Just because I live in the ghetto doesn't mean I dodge bullets every day. Are you struggling to come to terms with your father's murder? It was 12 years ago. I barely remember him or it. Are you struggling to come to terms with your mother's addiction? She's been clean for eight years. She's only addicted to soap operas these days. What's good with you, homegirl, home Namin? Okay, she hasn't said that, but give her time. Yes. <laughs> yes to all of that. I feel like that's the assumption we make often. And, and I speak as someone who has to, like, fight those assumptions in myself. I don't speak as someone who's an expert or wonderful at this. But just making assumptions because of the neighborhood someone comes from or because of who their parents are, that their life is a certain way, or that they're only capable of a certain level in school because of that. I think that happens to Brie all throughout this book. Instead of, um, like I said earlier, celebrating, instead of all of her positives being praised and focused on, it's always about her home life or, or what's going on. Is she smuggling in drugs? Is she experiencing violence at home? Corey Smith and I just recently had um, an episode where we talked about the benefits of being an octopus, and one of the things I found in um, researching for that episode was some mentor texts from young adult and middle grades literature for how, how, how school is written about in those books. And I think this is a great mentor text for those of us with privilege, and if we're working in schools, we have privilege, to, to check our privilege and think about where are we using um, deficit-based thinking with our students because of their social class, because of how they dress, because of their race, because of gender, and, um, and where do we need to be aware of that and use a more appreciative lens and um, connect with them as humans as opposed to as statistics, as opposed to archetypes um, or stereotypes. I grew, I grew up in Mississippi, and the high school I went to was um, about 50% black and 50% white. And so I just always think it's interesting because I remember when I read The Hate You Give Us Some People, um, 
they mentioned being surprised at this family that had um, they had gotten pregnant. Star's family, the mom got pregnant in high school, and they stayed together, and they were so surprised by that. And I just was kind of shocked. Like, why? Why is that so surprising? I mean, is that that abnormal? Um, and I think that there is when the danger of living in Vermont, when you have so little diversity is it's really easy to make those assumptions because all you see is one thing um, whether it be intentionally what you're seeing or what the media is putting out there to you and you're not seeing the whole span of, of the african-american community and culture and and what it what their lives are really like um, just like you're also in vermont seeing only one span of white culture too so it's really important for books like this that show that kind of can break some of those stereotypes in your head right and if if you don't have access to people of color in your life to 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 be in community with um which is a great way to learn about other people's lived experience i think a secondary way for me at least has been through literature i um Oh, listeners, you may have heard this before, but I made a commitment six or seven years ago to read half of my books written by people of color to expand my horizons. And what was a challenge at first has now become so easy. Um, And it's changed my worldview because for me, books are a way to walk around in somebody else's shoes, to um, have empathy for somebody else's experience of the world that's different than me. And um, it's really um, changed my perspective on the world. Yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my credit for that to Jessica Carthu-Domink. When I took her class in grad school um, on teaching English literature, she had us start making, just start listing some of our favorite books that we would want to use with middle schoolers, just like an online digital library. And halfway through, we had to go through and say, what are we not representing? And that was so helpful for me to think, what am I not representing in my own reading life? And what would that mean for me as a teacher if this was all I was putting out there? So kind of similar mindset and shift and say, I cannot just teach white female authors or white female heroines. Right. Right. Could you say more about how that shows up in your classroom now, Marley? So I really intentionally seek out books, and I have an amazing co-teacher, Matt Lutz, who does the same. We just really try to seek out books that have a range of, of narrators so that we're showing... Um, uh, heroines and heroes that are similar to our, our students, but also really different. Um, so we will make a list of our books. We do Lucy Calkins um, book groups, so we'll have a lot of mini book groups going at the same time so that we can offer uh, differentiation within levels of reading, within interest, but all centered around uh, central themes. Right now we're about to do historical fiction. But we'll look at that list and say, okay, what do we not have represented? Where can we pull that in? Um, in fact, we're going to use on the come up in the spring for, we will do a social justice book group. And so every book will center around, maybe it'll be civil rights, maybe it'll be the Holocaust, maybe it'll be um, the Japanese internment during World War II. And it might it might be even more current, like on the come up, we'll use Dear Martin, we use um, All American Boys. So books that are around police brutality, and current things, and our hope would be that through students reading all those different books with diverse um, authors and, and diverse main characters, that they'll see the central themes, though, that run throughout 
of, of injustice and what that looks like and how we can actively fight against it. But so it's, it's really just like an intentional make the list, step back from it and say, what am I missing? What am I not representing? Yeah. What resources do you use when you do that? Are there, are there any recommendations you might have for listeners? Yes. So um, one thing I would say is use people like me who have to read a lot for Green Mountain Book Award or anything else because I'm doing all that reading. There are other people in my committee doing all the reading of the current books. Ask us. We would love to talk about books. I love We Need Diverse Books. It's a it's both a website and a hashtag you can look up on Instagram. Um, just the whole bookstagram world out there. If you get on, I know most educators love Twitter. I'm really scared of Twitter. I don't know why. So I live on Instagram world. And you can always follow great, um, great teachers and educators who are posting diverse books. And that's always helpful. In fact, I use that with my own children to make sure that I'm bringing books into their lives that aren't just all white men characters. So I'll get a lot of picture books from that for my five-year-old. Those are all excellent strategies. I'm going to add one. Yeah. Talk to your librarians, folks. Your school librarians know so much and can access so many great titles and help you uh, fill those holes in the viewpoints that are represented in your books. Yes. I have the world's best librarian, Heidi Eustace, and she reads well, we usually have a read-off, and we're within one or two books of each other each year. And she knows all the amazing books. she That's her job, right? Like, let's use that resource. Absolutely. Good. Well said. You do have a fabulous librarian here in Heidi Houston's. Um, so let's get back to Brie, even though I could talk about this with you yeah. for ages. Um, uh, so um, Brie's often in trouble. Um, but something happens at school that really that changes the course for her. I wondered if you could tell us, um, uh, reader, listeners, I don't think we're um, spoiling it because it happens on page 59 and it's really central to the story. Um, something happens with the security guards, Tate and Long, and I wondered if you could just talk about that. Yes, so there are security guards at the front of our school, which is not that uncommon. That happens sadly more and more in schools. And as she's going through with her friends, her friends go through first and they stop her, the security guards do. And she doesn't beat the alarm off. There's no reason she should be stopped. They ask her for her bag and Brie is running a little side business in which she buys bulk candy and then sells it at school. So she doesn't want them to see her bag. Again, they have no right to see her bag. Nothing has gone off. And she says no and they put their hands on her, push her to the ground. Um, her friend Malik actually records it. And so it ends up being a, a big situation where she's actually suspended, even though she did nothing wrong, except for bringing the candy. And it doesn't seem like the guards have any kind of consequence. Yeah. And one of the guards, we should say, is black, right? Like, so this is a white guard and a black guard. And um, not just Bree, but the other kids from uh, the projects, from um, Garden Heights, feel like they get treated differently than the kids, say, from Midtown or from the um, wealthier neighborhoods. There's a real sense of um, implicit bias uh, in this book. And I, I don't know if it comes up on page 59, but I, we should probably turn to page 59 where this happens and see. Um, let me read a little section from um, page 64 where at this point Bree's mom has come in and is speaking to the principal. 
Dr. Rhodes points at the two chairs in front of her. Please have a seat. We do. Are you going to tell me why my daughter was handcuffed? Jay asked. There was an incident. Obviously. I will be the first to admit that the guards used excessive force. They put Brianna on the floor. Threw, I mumble. They threw me on the floor. Jay's eyes widen. Excuse me? We've had issues with students bringing illegal drugs. That doesn't explain why they manhandled my child, says Jay. Brianna was not cooperative at first. It still does not explain it, Jay says. Dr. Rhodes takes a deep breath. It will not happen again, Mrs. Jackson. I assure you there will be an investigation and disciplinary action will take place if the administration sees fit. However, Bree may have to face disciplinary action at first. Um, one of the words that really s sticks out to me there is that idea of Brianna not being cooperative. And it seems like if you read, when you read the book, hopefully you'll all read the book, that Bree just was protecting her right. She didn't set off the alarm. She said, you can't touch my, my bag. She wasn't overly, um, a word we'll use later, aggressive. She wasn't overly aggressive. She just was doing what she knew she was allowed to do. But the bias against her is that by refusing to do that, she wasn't cooperative. So therefore, it was okay that they threw her to the ground. And that seems to be what the principal is saying. He's right. defending their use because she wasn't cooperative. And I think there's there's great research out there um, that says that um, black and brown children are more likely to be treated as if they're older, right, in any disciplinary situation, right? And so um, whether that's seven-year-olds being handcuffed, we've seen recently there were news stories about children being taken to jail for, for offenses, and, and these are children. And so the word for me is um, uh, when Jay says, that does not explain why they manhandled my child. This is a kid. Like, was there any reason to throw her to the ground? No, no matter how uncooperative she was being. And there's something about that sort of, um, the, the unquestioning of the implicit bias that's happening based on where's Bree's from and the color of her skin, that really ticks me off. That made me really angry when I read this book. Yeah, and I think one thing that also stuck out to me is during, during this whole process, um, Bree at one point reflects on how her mom has taught her how to respond to police and security guards. I'm always really struck by that. I have two little boys and I, I haven't had to sit them down and have conversations and say, at night you can't wear a hood, and we're not playing with toy guns because what could happen, or when the police stops you, this is what you do. I don't have to have those conversations. And, and African-American moms have to have those conversations with their kids if they want their kids to be safe, if they want their kids to not get killed, honestly. And, and so that really s stood out to me as this idea of, just because of Bree's color, and Bree is little. I mean, earlier we talked about her nickname being Little Bit. She's not, she's not a tall girl. She's not, she's not large. She's a tiny little teenage girl, and there's no reason they should have thrown her to the ground. I am a grown woman, and I gotta say, if I had to learn in an environment where I might possibly be thrown on the ground, where my very presence was suspect, I couldn't. That would get in the way of my learning. Right, and so I wonder about Bree, who kind of struggles as a student, who's not always the most disciplined of students, um, but still deserves an education, and how she's supposed to get one in a place where 
where she doesn't always feel safe in her body. Yeah. It's heavy. It is. This is a really heavy book. I, I found myself crying in reading this book and just how, um, what Brie has to face as a human in this world that I had never experienced before, the kind of, um, the kind of microaggression she faces on the daily. And, and one thing, they, they talk about her as being aggressive. Um, she's called aggressive. Let me flip to the page real quick, page Please 66. Do. Aggressive is used to describe me a lot. It's supposed to mean threatening, but I've never threatened anybody. I just say stuff my teachers don't like. All of them except Mrs. Murray, who happens to be my only black teacher. There was this time in history class during Black History Month. I asked Mr. Kincaid why we don't ever talk about black people before slavery. His pale cheeks reddened. Because we're following a lesson plan, Brianna, he said. Yeah, but don't you come up with the lesson plans, I asked. I will not tolerate outbursts in my class. I'm just saying, don't act like black people didn't exist before. He told me to go to the office, wrote me up as being aggressive. And she goes on and talks about several other incidents with, um, with teachers who say similar things. And I know that's a big topic um, out there is this this reality that black women are seen often as aggressive. If they're outspoken, if they're speaking the truth about things, they're being called aggressive a lot, which is, to me, I, I think just, again, that implicit bias because I feel like as a white mom, if I were to be um, a big advocate for my child, if I were to go to a school and talk to teachers and say, no, we need to make this happen, I would not be called aggressive. Um, I might be the most called like, well, she's kind of a strong mom. Um, but I think if a, if a person of color, if a woman of color were to do the same thing and go to a school, they would be seen differently by, by white people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I can't help but think about um, the way in which um, you can't win. <laughs> And, and also about like what Bree's really doing is critical thinking. She's asking these really hard questions, something we should be celebrating in school. And um, because she's black, because of her neighborhood, because the way she's taken, she ends up in the office. Don't we want kids in a history class to be thinking about these things, about why history is told the way it's told? Don't we want them challenging and thinking about hey, how come it's just this story and not that story? That's part of what being a historian is about. And so the fact that the one time she's really engaging, she gets thrown out of class, it's no wonder that she doesn't engage. Yeah, definitely. I, I, what if one of her white classmates had asked a similar question? Um, would, would the teacher say, oh, that's a great question. Like, Tom, let's talk about it. But as she's like trying to probe in differently, like probe in to what they're talking about and find out more, it just makes her teacher angry. Yeah, and it further disenfranchises her from school. She feels like her voice isn't valuable, that um, uh, that teachers, you know, she's constantly feeling like she doesn't belong. The sense that um, her thinking is unwelcome, her perspective is unwelcome in the building, um, in the school, and um, and she checks out a little bit as one would if you felt unwelcome and a lack of sense of belonging. One, one thing that um, you were saying earlier 
before we started is that she's at an art school and it's really ironic that she's a rapper which is an art and yet that part of her and who she is and she's really talented we'll see throughout the book it's what a lot of the book actually focuses on but that part of her is not not praised at school not seen as an asset because I I think because it doesn't fit in in with the school's idea of what is art yeah listeners um we did talk a little bit earlier before we started recording about uh Boy, Angie Thomas, I think, is also a rapper, and um, she writes these amazing raps, these amazing poetic forms in the book. And Marley and I were like, "How do we, how do we put that in in this podcast?" And we decided we kind of can't. Two white women trying to rap. Two white women who don't rap trying to rap. Breeze amazing lines. It's just not gonna work. But I do sort of want to set up what it's like for, for um, Brie to rap. I want to find when Brie first enters the ring, this rap competition, and just what's happening so you as a listener can get a sense of how miraculous her skill is, how talented she is as a young woman. All right, so, so Brie is now in the ring and doing um, a rap battle. And this is kind of her thinking to herself. Rule numero uno of battling, know your opponent's weaknesses. Nothing he spit this round is directed at me. That may not seem like a red flag, but right now it's a huge one. I blinked. A real MC would go for the kill because of that. Heck, I'd go for it. He's not even mentioning it. That means there's a 98% chance this is pre-written. Pre-written is a no-no in the ring. A bigger no-no? Pre-written by someone else. I don't know if he wrote those lines. Maybe he did. But I can make everyone think he didn't. Dirty? Absolutely. But since my dad is an off-limits, not a thing is off-limits. Rule number two of battling, use the circumstances to your advantage. Supreme doesn't look too worried, but trust, he should be. That goes in my arsenal. Rule number three, if there's a beat, make sure your flow fits it like a glove. Flow is the rhythm of the rhymes, and every word, every syllable affects it. Even the way a word is pronounced can change the flow. While most people know Snoop and Dre for deep cover, one time I found a remake of it by this rapper named Big Pun on YouTube. His flow on this song was one of the best I've ever heard in my life. There is so much that goes into the rapping that Brie does so well. And um, and in fact, the title on the come up is based on a rap that she's written um, uh, that becomes a really big deal, not just in her neighborhood in Garden Heights, but also in, Mid- in Midtown where she's going to school, right? Yeah. Yeah, she, she ends up recording this song, and it's kind of what a lot of the book later on focuses on. We have this first event with the security guards, but a lot of the book is on her rap song that's becoming big, and then if it portrays what she wants to portray about herself, and just the idea of putting it out there and, and what that song says about who she is. Um, and, and like I said earlier, Brie is... The whole book is about her figuring out who she is. She wants to be a rapper, and she's an amazing rapper, but she wants to make sure that the image she's putting off is who she really is. And it's a real tension, right? Because Jada wants her to do well at school, and uh, for good reason, right? Jada wants her to be a success in the world. She wants her to have a happy, healthy life, and she wants her to focus on school more. Um, But for the reasons we've already recounted, Brie's pretty alienated from school. And also, this arts magnet school 
doesn't realize that she's making this profoundly complex poetry, that she's creating these rhythms and rhymes with music that have great meaning, that she's using metaphor, that she's um, uh, telling stories in these really interesting ways. Um, it's all art, it's so creative, and she has no path forward for it at school. So all of her talent is outside of school in a way that, and that, that completely alienates her. Have you ever been able to hear anybody freestyle? freestyle? No. So there was this, um, this guy in my acting class in high school, and he was an amazing freestyler. So when we would have to do these free rights, he would get up and just, just go. He would just go out there with his raps, and they were amazing. And it's such a talent to figure out, um, because a rap is not just the end rhyme, and it's not just the syllables, but it's the internal rhyme. In fact, if, if you've ever studied Greek and, and Latin epics, if you look at the internal rhyme in the Iliad and the Odyssey, there's so much internal rhyming going on. I'm a, a bit of a classics geek, because that was my major. And, and that's what you see happening in so much rap, is that there's, there's not only the end rhyme, which is what we think, okay, you rhyme at the end of the word, great. It's that internal rhythm and beat that's happening at the same time that's so powerful and amazing. And the fact that so much of what Brie does is like instantaneous. She's out there and she's freestyling and she, her brain is working in a way that mine is not even capable of to make these end rhymes and internal rhymes and allusions and metaphors and similes. I mean, she's, she's killing it. She's doing an amazing job with all of the poetry, but then she goes to school and I'm, she's not getting A's in her English class, right? Because that's not what she's being assessed on. That's not what they're looking at, that talent she has. And it's not even not what they're looking at. It's completely ignored, right? It's, it's like divorced from school altogether. And um, I showed you right before a video that I'm going to put in the transcript, listeners, from the amazing Jamila Liscott. She's got this um, little five-minute TED Talk about the art of the cipher. And she talks about how when she's working with pre-service teachers, um, she puts on some music and asks them to create a cipher, to write some, some verse. Um, and just listening to this, I had such empathy for them because she talks about, uh, because I knew even before she said it, that it challenges them, that they don't know what to do, that they get, that it's overwhelmingly hard for most of them. And they're panicked and they know that the art they're creating is not up to snuff and that it's not good and it's just super hard and I can feel that in my body. Um, and her point is that um, meanwhile, the folks who can do this stuff, we label them as like, the, we, we can put labels on them like they're illiterate or incapable when they can create this complicated, as you just described it in ways I hadn't even thought of, this complicated art form that we can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it really is amazing. I hope everybody checks out that video. That was really great to think about. I think there's so much we do, even just so like grammatically, I think about the way, like the Afri African-American community in my hometown, like we just think, well, if your grammar doesn't match what the Oxford English Dictionary says is the right grammar, what our grammar textbooks say is the right grammar, then it's wrong. And that's not the case. It's just different. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's different and we need to relook at it and say, okay, how, how is what you're saying also grammatically correct? Right. 
Right. Linguists know that language is complicated in all its forms. There's not just one way, right way, right? And so I think that Jamila Liscott also makes this point that, um, and Brie does this all the time. She and she knows exactly how to code switch and how to talk in standard American English. And it's not that that's not valuable. It's that that's not the only thing that's valuable, that there are other ways of talking and being in the world that are sophisticated and that convey profound meaning and that are um, intelligent. Yes, definitely. But there's no place for that in Bree school. Yeah, and I think you see, you see that even when Bree talks to her teachers, it's like she hasn't quite, she's okay at code switching, but she hasn't quite mastered it in the same way that Star from The Hate You Give has. And that's not a bad thing. Like, in fact, I'm glad, I, I enjoy that about Bree, that she doesn't code switch quite so well. Because why should she have to? Right. Angie Thomas is really challenging us in this book to say, um, how do we need to um, change schools so that we don't require kids like Brie to assimilate to our notion of what it means to be in school, right? Or what it means to, um, uh, to talk in a scholarly way, right? Like that Brie doesn't need to act white to earn her place in school. Right, that there's equally valued and valid ways to be in the world. Yes, I almost think Angie Thomas was like bait and switching us. She's like, let me welcome you into my writing and you'll fall in love with my books, which we, I don't know if I've met anybody who read The Hate You Give and didn't love it. And so she, she brings us in star who can really assimilate into a white world. And then you want to read her next book and she switches it up a little bit. So who knows what's going to happen in her third book. I can't wait. (laughs) I know she's already mentioned that it's somebody, again, that's what happens when you Facebook stalk an author, you get tips like this. She mentions that it's going to be in Garden Height and I think it might be somebody, I think she said it's somebody we've already seen before, but just in passing. So. Very exciting. Yeah. There's a lot more going on in this book. Um, for me, one of the things that I, especially towards the end, that I just loved, um, and I don't want to give away too much, is, um, you know, that Jada um, is struggling uh, as a working class um, parent to make ends meet. Um, Trey, um, Bree's older brother, has graduated college and is not able to find a job probably due to implicit bias and other things as well in his field and is taking some time off. He wants to go to graduate school, but he's helping out the family by working at a local pizza place. And um, and they struggle like many working families do, probably like many of our students um, in Vermont who are, are working poor do to meet the electricity bill, to pay for food, to have the, often their fridge is nearly empty. And um, and part of why Brie wants to succeed as a rapper is to lessen the financial um, struggles that they're going through. And, and the thing I loved about Jada so much is that she keeps saying to Brie, I got this. I'm the parent here. You don't need to be the parent here. This is not your concern. Your concern right now is being a kid. And while I understand that Brie is concerned, I also just love that Jada was like, that's my job. I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I felt I felt the same way. I just I I love Brie. I probably connected more with Jada actually because because of that because she just was just loving her family so well and really struggling at the same time, but um 
Yeah, she's just amazing. She she fought so hard to overcome her addiction. Now she's fighting to get an education for herself. She's taking night classes. She's fighting to make sure that Bree gets a good education. She's fighting to make sure that Trey can can go to grad school or get a job working in his field. And and all of that while doing all that fighting, she's having to continue to fight off the temptation of her past addiction. And she surrounds herself with friends that can take care of her and protect her in that way. She's always trying to protect Bree. Um, she's just a really amazing woman. She has just a gentleness to her that I really loved and a kindness. Um, and I, I loved seeing her relationship with Bree because I think Bree really pushes against her a lot. And, and some of it is just past issues, right? Bree, as we saw, is still having nightmares about being abandoned. She's still struggling with that so much. And she just, throughout the book, has to see over and over her mom's love for her and really trust that. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. You spoke to that so beautifully. Um, and I can't help but return to this other theme of, like, Brie has to make some really hard choices. And she makes some bad decisions in this book because she wants to be a rapper. She wants to follow her art. She wants to um, make a little money at it so her family doesn't struggle so hard. And I couldn't help but wonder... If she had a flexible pathway through high school that allowed her to develop this talent within the context of her education, would her choices have looked different? Would her life have would 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 her pathway have been um, I don't know if the word is smoother, but would she have would she get in less trouble? Yeah, I talk about the way we do school here a lot when I'm down visiting my family in Mississippi. And I've talked about this before with my mother-in-law. She said she was someone who struggled in school, not because she isn't bright, but because she maybe doesn't fit in what we like categorize as how a student should be. And she said, oh, if I was at your school, man, I would have loved that. And I hope, I hope that if I had, my goal is to have a classroom and be on a team in which someone like Bree would come in and we would celebrate her talents. That we would find those talents and help figure out ways for her to explore that. That we would give her books that were interesting to her, projects where she could really shine, rather than saying, you need to fit in this box. And goodness gracious, she's at an art school, right? Like, shouldn't she already fit in that art box in a way that I feel like I would never? Um, but she's not. So. I hope that we're all, all the teachers in Vermont are, are doing this with fidelity so that someone like Bree, we have Bree's in our classroom. You know, we have, um, we have all of these students in our classroom and hope we're recognizing it and noticing that. Yeah. How do you feel like you do that here at Charlotte Central School? Well, I was saying we do, um, we do the book groups and I have students vote on it and I'm not always able to give them books. They don't always get their first choice, but I really strive to source through different means the books that keep them interested. I, I won a Scholastic grant this year. I've done PTO grants. I The reason I did GMBA in the beginning was to get books from my classroom and to make sure I knew books to recommend. We also have Genius Hour, which is where kids do personal interest projects. And that, um, there was a student last year, he graduated and he maybe didn't like always fit in the mold for for what we were looking for in class, and Genius Hour became a way in which he got to shine. It was amazing. Um, 
So that's like one of our biggest ways we do. And then a lot of it is just the relationship building. If her teachers, if Bree's teachers knew her, if they really knew her and really liked her, what would that look like? How would that be different? Would the teacher who sent her out of class, maybe instead they would have realized, hey, like she's asking a question, like she's engaged. Let's, let's talk about this. And I think relationships is the biggest thing yeah. to start that. Yeah, absolutely. So well said. I love it. Do you have any other books to recommend as a as a, a huge reader and lover of YA? Do you have any other books to recommend for our listeners? Yes, I. If, if you're looking for diverse books, which hopefully we all are, um, I thought we set the world on, we set we set the dark on fire. Hmm. We set the dark on fire. Um, it's amazing. Um, Patron State of Nothing is also amazing. It's by Randy Rebe. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And he also wrote After the Shot Drops, which is on GMBA this year. Um, this is an amazing book. It takes place in um, the Philippines. A boy goes to the Philippines. He was from there, and then he lives, spends most of his life in America, and then his cousin dies very unexpectedly and very mysteriously. So he goes there. It has um, it has characters that are LGBTQ. It has um, themes around race and themes around addiction, themes around um, like low socioeconomic class. Just really amazing, and it's based like in real world information. So it's the kind of book you close and you say, "I want to know more about what's happening in the Philippines," and it kind of draws you in and gets you engaged. So, but I would also just put a plug in there that if you want to read good books, you should read the Green Mountain Book Award list for this past year. I'm a little biased, but I think it's amazing. It's a fabulous list, I have to say. I love the list this year. Um, thank you so much. I have read none of those books, so oh. I'm so excited to check them good. out. Now you have a to-be-read list. I sure do. I always have a to-be-read list. Yes. Um, I'm so grateful, and I'm so grateful to you for um, choosing this book to talk about. Uh, listeners, if you want to be on the podcast, get in touch with me. I am always looking for interesting educators and folks to talk about great literature, and I'm wide open to the books we discuss. Um, so I'm so grateful to you, Marley, for choosing on the come up, um, and uh, it required me to give it another read through and think about it differently than the first time when I read it just for pleasure. And um, and for your insights into the book and then, and how you use um, literature in your classroom. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you for letting me be on it. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Marley Evans for appearing on the show and talking with me about On the Come Up. If you're looking for a copy of On the Come Up, check your local library. Special thanks to Audrey Homan, audio engineer extraordinaire. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at VTEDReads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.